I will mention though, when I quit my job Friday, 5 p.m. and I shut down my laptop, I thought, what the heck have I done? (laughs) I'm in debt. I'm still like $20,000 in debt. I have no savings to speak of because I threw everything into my debt, like literally pennies. I would find pennies on the ground and I would send it into my debt. And I had no money. I had maybe $2,000 in savings. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Alrighty, hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Millionaires Unveiled podcast, where we tell the stories and strategies of everyday millionaires and unveil their current portfolio allocations. I am Jace, here alongside my co-host Clark, and this is episode 105. On last week's show, we had Mark. He had a net worth around $3 million. 1.4 of that is in seven rental properties. He had about 900000 in retirement accounts, and the rest was in the primary residence, all of which was paid for. He has no debt in his life whatsoever. So we dive into his story, how he got his rental snowball started. He's recently retired, and we discussed what he's doing with his time now. A really ter- terrific story. One point At one point earlier in his life, he called eating at McDonald's a luxury. So truly amazing how he was able to turn around his financial story. On today's interview, we have Sherry. She has a current net worth of around $800,000 and works as a STEM consultant. She has $500,000 in personal cash and business and about $200,000 in investments. But before getting into that interview, I want to thank our sponsor, Obsidian Capital, for supporting the show. Creating passive income is one of the quickest ways to create and establish wealth. At Obsidian Capital, their core philosophy is to enable qualified investors to create long-term wealth passively through strategic real estate investments. Their team of experienced real estate professionals identify stabilized and value-add multifamily real estate assets that will provide strong financial returns, a healthy risk profile, tax incentives, and additional benefits that come investing in real estate. They pride themselves on a high level of integrity and have experience in acquiring and managing over $300 million in multifamily assets. Furthermore, their leadership has over 45 years of combined industry experience. Visit their website today to learn more about their streamlined investment process at www.obsidiancapitalco.com. Also, we'd love to share your millionaire financial story. Our goal is to get a broad list of guests and stories. So if you'd like to be on the show as a millionaire interviewee or one that is close to millionaire status, please reach out to us. Once again, our email is millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. So without any further delay, let's get into the interview with Sherry. Sherry, you want to just give us a little bit about your background and kind of what you're up to now? Sure. Uh, I'm a consultant in the STEM, STEM industry, which stands for science, technology, engineering, and math. And I live in Montreal, Canada. I got out of $60,000 of student debt in 18 months because I partly because I started budgeting and tracking my money but also because I quadrupled my income within that time frame of graduating and right now I just kind of work half the time and chill out the other half <laughs> which is my dream life. <laughs> wow. And what and what is your net worth today? Right now I have 850,000. And how is that broken up? So I have $300,000 in cash. And the rest of the money is a mix between my business and personal savings as well. So I have about $200,000 just in plain cash because I'm in between contracts. So I'm not working and I need to be able to cover my cash flow. And then I have my business money and then I have uh, about $250,000 in investments. And how are those investments divided up? 
So I have um, quite a strategy of mostly dividends as of late. I had wanted to do something like a 70-30 split between index funds and dividends, but then I read um, a little tidbit from Michael uh, Burry, who was the star of Big, The Big Short, and he had predicted the subprime mortgage crisis, and he was saying that the index funds could be a bubble. So I'm kind of researching into that. I just read about it yesterday, and I may be kind of changing up my strategy, but for now, I was looking more towards um, having at least... 50% in dividends to be able to have an income of 12000 up to $50,000 because that's the threshold before you pay more than $1,000 in taxes a year in Canada. And then the other half in just index funds as a kind of base portfolio, just in case I ever need to dig into it in case my dividends didn't work out. Awesome. You kind of talked to us a little bit before we started the show, but how did you kind of get started on this financial journey that you're on? So I wasn't very smart when I was going to university. And I wasn't frugal at all. I had no idea what a budget was. I just knew what I had in my student loans and my bank account. Um, I worked two full-time jobs. I was a building administrator where I actually lo- um, lived. So I got half of my rent paid because I was an administrator. Um, then I also worked uh, part-time uh, on two other jobs, which equaled a full-time job that I could do on weekends and, and nights. And all of that while going to business school. So as a result, I had a three-bedroom apartment. I was truly living it up. People could not understand how I had all this money. And I think they thought that it was inheritances or my parents were paying for me, but it wasn't any of that. I was just working a heck of a lot and spending every single penny that was coming in, including all my student loans. And it got to the point where I started my first job. I couldn't even afford to take off a month and kind of just travel and relax after school. I had to start the day that I graduated, actually, and I missed my graduation. And I, I had $2,000 left in my student loans of all places. And I had to put that down as my first and last month's rent deposit on my first apartment. And I thought at that moment, something is wrong. I'm doing something wrong because this should not be normal. And that's when I, I started just devouring any sort of money article I could find to try and figure out how to get myself out of this mess. And, and that's, that it kicked off all of that. And I started a blog which I since sold. It was called Fabulously Broke in the City. I sold that off a couple of years ago um, when I when I had my first child or when I was pregnant with him, rather, because I didn't think I had time to do blogging anymore. But I just loved it so much that I got back into it. And I, I kind of want to be, you know, that inspirational or, you know, helpful role model to other young women out there to tell them, you know, you don't need to get married or do all these other things to make money. You can make your own money. You can negotiate. You can kind of, you know, take care of yourself and be financially independent, which is something I think is missing in a lot of what we're teaching young women and, and girls and anybody really uh, these days. Yeah, agreed. And I think it's a great story and a great point. But just going back real quick to your portfolio, you have about 50% in index funds, you said. Is that in US, international or Canadian? What's kind of the market you're trying to track there? So I have most of it in Canadian stocks for now, only because I did a little currency hedging back when uh, the Canadian dollar was equal to the U.S. dollar, when it was, I think, a dollar, two dollar. And I thought, oh, we're never going to see this again. So I took my all my Canadian money. I converted pretty much the bulk of it. I think it was over, over 150K at a time into U.S. dollars. And when it finally dropped down to not to the levels of 30% less like today, but maybe around 15 or 20, that's when I kind of converted it back into Canadian. So I made a little profit off that. I kept some money in U.S. dollar funds. Um, I would say, let me see here, if I take a look here, I have about uh, 40,000 in US dollar 
uh, index funds, and the rest of it is all Canadian. Okay, gotcha. In U.S. index funds. Gotcha. Yeah, because it's interesting. We've interviewed a few Canadians and and just kind of to see how their allocation between U.S., Canadian, and international. It's it's always kind of an interesting question to ask because they always they always tend, of course, to be in three buckets, but different allocations or percentages, I guess. So I would say the majority of my investments are all U.S. index funds, like the S and P 500. I have maybe a very tiny percentage in Canada. But I make up for it with my dividend stocks being mostly Canadian companies. And then I have another small portion for everywhere else in the world except the U.S. as gotcha. funds. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good to know. So let's go back to the story a little bit. You shared $60,000 you paid off in student debt in about 18 months. So if you average that, it's about 3300 a month right? <laughs> yeah. that you paid yeah. off. You know, it's obviously it impressive because if you were making 60000 your paycheck was around fourteen, fifteen hundred or something, I would guess, right? In U.S., that's about what it would be. And so you were putting all of your paycheck and more. And so talk about how you were kind of able, first of all, to do that. And then you raised your income you shared with us from 65000 about 60000 to 250 or so. Yes. So there's actually two parts of this. Because I'm a consultant, I travel so often that the down payment or the first and last month's rent I put down on the apartment, I never saw my apartment. I think out of 12 months, I was there maybe one month or two months. And it got to the point where I thought, why am I paying for this massive apartment that I'm never in, sucking up all this money when I could literally just live in the cities where I'm working? So that's what I did. I basically sold off everything, <laughs> literally my whole closet, my wardrobe, all my furniture, got rid of everything, moved what little I had left into into my parents' house in storage. And I just started living in the cities where I worked. So I had everything paid for me. I had the hotel paid. I had the food paid. And they actually preferred it because I was there and I was able to work earlier and leave later um, for the client. And I didn't have to fly back on the weekend. So there was none of this rushing off at noon on Friday to catch a flight. And I was, yeah, it's true. <laughs> now they were getting yeah. the best of both worlds. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I was, I was really getting the best of all the worlds, really. And I asked my managers, like, is this okay if I just stay here for the weekend instead of going back? And she said, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, it's, it's actually cheaper for us to pay for a long-term stay hotel for you than it is for us to keep doing the stop-start hotel thing. So I yeah. literally dumped I would say 95% of my paycheck straight into debt. Wow. Yeah. No, it was a sweet deal, but I didn't have kids. Don't forget, I was single. I yeah. was lonely. No, 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 still, but it, it still takes so, some dedication. And, 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 you know, that's, and you did that for a year and a half, about right? 18 I, months? Yeah, I did it for about a year and a half. And it got to the point where it was just so stressful because it's very difficult to keep up that kind of lifestyle, especially if you are on two projects. Oh my gosh. You're flying everywhere and you're jet lagged and you're tired. You miss your family, your friends, your food, your bed, or at least your bed at your parents. <laughs> and, um, I, I just, I couldn't take it anymore. And it, it got to the point where I was on a project. I'm not going to go into detail, but I kind of came to a head with, with the project manager who was there and they, they didn't want me to go home early. They wanted me to stay much later. And I was already dedicating, I think over seven, 60 to 70 hours on this project. And I said, I'm not doing it. And because I was a junior, I had no power at the time or so they thought. And they said, well, you have to, or you're going to get written up and all this other HRBS that they tell you, you know, to try and scare you, especially when you're young and you don't know anything. <laughs> and I said, you know what? I'm not taking this. I'm, I'm truly, I'm sick of this. I'm done with it. I quit my job. And then I, I started, uh, I found a contract, I would say within the next two days. I will mention though, when I quit my job Friday, 5 p.m. and I shut down my laptop, I thought, what 
the heck have I done? (laughs) I'm in debt. I'm still like $20,000 in debt. I have no savings to speak of because I threw everything into my debt, like literally pennies. I would find pennies on the ground and I would send it to my debt. And I had no money. I had maybe $2,000 in savings when I quit my job because I was just so angry at the whole system. And just like a miracle, I got a call on the Monday. They said, can you start next week? I said, of course I can. And, and that's how I, and then I asked for a really high rate and I didn't think they were going to accept, but they did it. So <laughs> done. So how, how much were you making at that point when you quit your job? I was making $67,000 a year because I had busted my butt, but not in billable hours. I busted it doing all this other work that is invisible and does not go notice at the firm. Um, so because of that, my raise was only $2,000 above my initial starting salary of 65000 Okay, so you were working you were working for a bigger firm, and then when you went off on your own and, and kind of started doing contract work, that's when you were able to raise the income faster. Oh yeah, the minute I started contract work, I, I started at one hundred fifteen dollars an hour, which is two hundred thirty thousand a year. And then a month into the contract, I thought, wait a minute, I'm there, I'm undercharging, like they're really making me me work for more than what I'm charging them. So I raised the rate, and I said, listen, I'm not coming back. Until I get $15 more an hour, I want $130 an hour. So that's $260,000 a year. And uh, my broker said, I don't think they're going to pay you. I said, listen, they can pay me or not pay me. Because by that time, my debt was paid. So I was I was golden. And uh, I said, I'd rather stay at home, watch TV, and eat bonbons than come back for less than $130 an hour. And they were, <laughs> I mean, I, I said it. I said it to them. They're like, wow, you've got a serious poker face. I'm like, listen. I know what I'm worth. I understand that you guys are desperate, but you're working me more than you should have been. And you, this is not, this is not what you sold me. Like you told me this was an easy, cool project. It's not an easy, cool project. Like I'm doing way more than, you know, above my pay grade. And, um, I, I, they came back after saying that it was impossible and nobody in the industry, especially somebody who's only 25 years old could ever earn $130 an hour. But the client signed because I was the only one who spoke perfect English and could go hmm. to Ontario, Ontario provinces and American states to train Ameri- like English people. I was the only one who spoke English. So wow. there you go. <laughs> wow. Wow. Good for you. That's awesome. So Dave Ramsey, often with debt, he kind of talks about having an I've had it moment. I'm not dealing with it anymore. I don't want that. Like I'm, whatever it takes to pay it off. Was there a moment like that for you or how did, where did this kind of come to a head? And you said, all right, I've got $60,000 in debt. Like now's the time I'm going to start cranking this out. It was when I opened my student loan statement and I realized I was paying five to 7% on, on this massive debt. And I thought I'm paying how much in interest a day. And it was just, nope, this has to disappear. I got, I got to get out of this so that I can live my life. And can you imagine how much money I'm going to have after this is gone? And that was when it all started steamrolling. <laughs> How did you get into the debt? Was it that you didn't know what you were signing up for? Were you obviously, I assume you were paying for education on your own. How did this whole situation kind of first start where you had so, $60,000 in debt? So what happened was when I was younger, my parents actually won the lottery and they, they are really terrible with money. And that's why I don't have any money principles at all. I don't have any idea. I, or at least at that time, I didn't understand a budget or income you know, expenses. I didn't understand anything about investing or saving. Um, and I grew up with zero money, anything, money, money knowledge at all, I should say. And what happened was 
after they won the lottery, they bought a huge house. They bought an expensive Mercedes and two Rolexes. And my mother swore to me when I was younger that she had set aside a good chunk of money for us in our savings account so that we would never have to worry about school. So I grew up with this idea that I had this money. Now, I understand some people say, well, you shouldn't have expected it, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I've heard it all over the years, okay, about expecting this educational money. But she told me specifically, and I had it in my head, and she repeated it numerous times as I was growing up. When it came time for me to get into the best university I could, and I did, and I worked really hard and I tried to get scholarships and, and I tried to minimize the amount. She basically came to me and told me that there was no money. And I said, what do you mean there's no money? She said, well, turns out I told your father to set aside money, but he didn't. They kind of just gambled it away is what happened. So that's mm. when I, I thought, well, that's that's not what I was expecting. <laughs> and um, right. that's when I, I went to the banks and I said, listen, I'm going to go to a really nice school and it's going to cost a lot of money. Here's my acceptance papers. How much can you loan me? And they basically just throw money at you because once you're in these schools, they know that you're going to make good money when you leave and you'll definitely not default on the payments. Unlike some degrees that may not get you that kind of, um, that kind of recognition in terms of pay. Right. Um, so they just, they just threw money at me. Like when you're a kid and they're giving you, you know, 20,000 to 30,000 a year in loans. Oh yeah, you you think it's free money because you I remember I had no clue about money at all. I didn't understand at the end. Like I mean, I knew as an abstract concept one day this is a loan and I'd have to pay it back, but I don't think I really understood that I myself would have to pay it back. Somehow in my brain, I had this fairy godmother that would come along and just clear my debt with a wave of her wand by the time I graduated. Um, or have my student loans forgiven the way that my oldest brother had his forgiven when he left business school. So, I mean, coming out of all of that, you can understand that I, I had, I was living in fantasy land, basically. No, and no, by the time, and, and, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, I was just going to say, and I, I, you're not alone, right? Obviously, that's the mindset of other people. And, and I can tell you just from personal experience that I had a, a friend that I went to school with, and he, he was getting student loans. And when all he wanted to do, when he wanted to up his, his lifestyle, right, or up, up up how much he was going to spend or shop or spend on the weekend or get a new car or whatever it was, he would just go back to the school and the bank and together they just give him more loan because they said there was an increase in his personal expenses, right? And so there's really no thought of saying, geez, at some point, you know, sure, it's only $5,000 now and it seems like a little bit or, you know, it probably seems like a lot, but you don't really have a, a true sense of what that's going to take to pay off and how long it's going to take. So oh, you know, I, I, can, I can totally see how, how you thought that. And not only that, the interest rates were five and seven percent at the time when I graduated mm. and it was, it was a good time. So that was like, that's a chunk of money. You know, this is not two percent, three percent. This is five to seven percent. And it's the government taking a good chunk of that and then a private bank that was also loaning me the money. And the yeah. sad story is that I actually went to one bank, a bigger bank before to ask for a loan. And because my mother's credit was so bad, they refused to even loan me any money, even with her co-signing. And the banker was sitting there looking at me going, but you have the acceptance letter. I mean, I don't know why my manager won't give you the money. Just because your mother's bad credit doesn't mean you're going to have it. And I, I realized at the point that money and credit, these were all abstract concepts to me, but they seemed to be very important. And stupid me, I didn't even think about, you know, reading more into it before, you know, going through business school and whatever, which is ironic. It wasn't until I graduated and I saw the hard number staring back at me that I realized that I had to get out of it. And and it was something that was truly going to haunt me the rest of my life if I didn't. 
Yeah. Well, phenomenal job, obviously. And congrats oh, again. So we usually ask this at the end, Sherry, but just while we're talking about it, what advice do you give to somebody who maybe feels like they can't get ahead or maybe they're only making, you know, 60000 50000 $40,000 a year and they have piles of debt and they and they just can't quite see over it? What's kind of your advice to them to stay motivated and stay driven to get that paid off and move forward with their financial life? Well, they don't know anything about money at all. I would say the best thing to do is to not try and think of it as having to learn very difficult concepts in investing, like puts and calls and options. I mean, that stuff is not important for now. I mean, what's important now is that you, you connect with your money in the sense that you understand what you're going to use your money for. So books like The Soul of Money, um, or, uh, the one by Vicky Robin, like the name escapes me right now. Uh, your, your money, money or your, your life. life. Those, yeah. yeah, that's it. Yeah. Those books, they're not, they don't really talk about money in terms of dollars and cents. And that can get very confusing for somebody who's just starting out. And I speak from experience, um, cause I really hate math. <laughs> um, but it's, it's one of those things where if you just talk about money or think about money as a tool to get you to achieve your freedom, your, you know, an option to, to kind of work part time, basically, like I do and still live a, a comfortable lifestyle and you see money as a goal for improving your life rather than amassing money or you know living on a big pile of cash and and so on that stuff doesn't is not interesting what's interesting is what money represents to you and for me it's freedom the freedom to say things like well I'm not taking that contract and I'm going to quit this job and I don't really care what happens because I got cash you know so um, I would say the best advice is to think about what money can do for you, number one. Then number two, to stay motivated is to understand that what you see on Instagram and social media and what your friends do, you don't know the backstory behind that. You don't know who has had an inheritance or who has had you know money money given to them by their parents every month, even though they're full grown adults and their parents are still paying things. You don't know any of their, their story. Yeah, who's, really, who's they don't putting it on credit cards? Yeah, exactly. And who's living off student loans like me when I was in school or who's living off uh, lines of credit or, you know, doing the reverse mortgage thing. Re- what did they call it? Reverse equity. Is that the name now? Reverse equity. Um, doing all those, all those sorts of things to get money to go on these seven vacations a year and buy a fancy new Mercedes every three, three months, three years or whatever. Um, you don't know their backstory. So really what you have to do is focus on you, focus on your money what you can do and find ways to kind of be happy with what you have, which sounds really trite. I mean, I, I understand coming out from somebody who has all this money. Yeah. Okay. She's telling us to be happy what we have. That sounds stupid, but it's true. You have to kind of appreciate the fact that you're healthy. Uh, you live in a country that is not, you know, <laughs> war torn. You have access to, you know, start with the basic things and build up. I don't have to take the bus. That's already a plus for me. Um, little things like that can help you see that, that, you know, your life is really not about deprivation. It's about working towards a goal of freedom, which is completely different from, oh, I'm in this prison and I have to save all this money. And, you know, I'm trying to get rid of debt, but then I'm trying to save all this money. And I just want to go and splash it out on a big Las Vegas trip, you know, but that trip's going to last for maybe just a couple of fleeting moments. But at the end of it, what do you have to show for it? Nothing. So what really makes you look rich and feel rich is having money in the bank, not looking like you're rich. Um, right. And that, that would probably be more, you know, think about your lifestyle. You don't, oh. you don't need to have the biggest house and all that other stuff. You know, consider what people are telling you and think, is that for me? 
do I want to travel seven times a year or am I just jealous that they have the money to do so, but I would take that money and I would do something else with it. You know, that's, that's wish, what I wish somebody had told me. <laughs> yeah. And I really like that advice, particularly the first part where you kind of found a purpose, right? Is that safe to say your purpose was freedom, right? You were saying, I want to be free. And, and then you kind of said, okay, now what do I have to do to get there? Right. Here's yes. the goal. Here's kind of my purpose that I'm aiming for, the end goal, and here's what I'm going to do to get there. So I, t- I totally agree. I think terrific advice. So then you you get all this debt paid off, right? Sixty thousand gone, amazing. And then and then what? You say, okay, now I'm going to start investing, and or how did it go from there? Well, after I cleared off my my debt, I actually wrote a check for eighteen thousand and watched it disappear, and I was so happy. I think I have the letter still. It must be framed somewhere in my room. And after that was done, I was like, wow, I'm at zero dollar net worth. This is the best day of my life. Uh, then after, after that con, I actually negotiated for that higher rate that I mentioned earlier. And I ended up, uh, made, in total from that contract, 90,000 in three months. Um, I kind of just sat on that money because by that time I didn't have another contract and I was really tired because I was traveling a lot and I was working a lot for that money. And I invested it in, uh, index funds actually. I just started off S&P 500, something very basic, uh, through the TD Bank. They have something called an E-series funds which are not as cheap as Vanguard Canada um, if you trade with ETFs on, on a, a brokerage, but they are the cheapest you're going to get from a financial institution that you can just throw money into as a mutual fund um, and pay very low fees. So TDE series is where I started. I threw all my money in there. I started reading way more books on investing because now that I had money, I could invest it and I didn't want to screw it up. So I, I actually read a book. My brother actually gave me a book called uh, The 12-Step Active Investor's Guide or help guide or something like that. And it goes, it basically goes, it's a really long book that goes into why index investing is king and picking individual stocks is for the stupid people who want to lose money. Um, and I read that. It seemed to make sense. And I thought, okay, well, this seems a little too easy, but you know, I'm going to do it. So I just threw all my money to index funds and I kept enough aside as cash to live on because I, I realized that I didn't want to sell my investments to live. And I kind of misjudged how much money to save aside. I didn't save aside enough. And I ended up having to sell a little bit of my investments to keep paying for my expenses, which taught me a good lesson for later, um, which is why now I have 200K in cash, just sitting on cash uh, in a high interest savings account. Um, and then from there, I just picked up another contract uh, and negotiated a higher rate. And I worked for a little bit. Then I stopped. And I took a break. Then I, I traveled around the world here or so. Um, frugally, of course, we lived in hostels, we stayed in hostels and ate out of grocery stores, but we saw the world and it was awesome. And then I, uh, I took another contract, kind of chilled out, took another contract, chilled out. And I mean, I kind of go in between contracts. I take about a year and a half to two years off in between contracts and I just relax. I do what I want. Yeah, that's awesome. So Sherry, you've built up this great net worth. You've got a great story, you paid off all your debt got a bunch of cash in the bank. Where do you kind of go from here? Do you have a target net worth or target passive income goal you're trying to get to or anything like that? So yes, I actually have been thinking about this a lot. And I think I'd like my dividends, dividend income within the next five to 10 years to be at least $12,000 up to upwards of 24000 Like I said, a max of 50, but then you would need millions for that if your your yield is only about 3.5% or 3%. I was also starting getting more into uh, business-to-business lending. So we have something called Lending Loop here in Canada. I wrote about it on my blog, and I actually show people how to do the auto-invest with it. 
I'm planning on ramping that up to about $100,000 because I have a 12% return rate right now on the businesses I've lent money out to um, with a 4% risk rate. And then I was just going to have maybe about $100,000 in cash and maybe another $250,000 in index funds. So that's my plan within the next five to 10 years. But I kind of can't plan too far ahead because A, I'll get disappointed because if I don't get a contract, then I'm unable to meet my goals for, let's say, 2019 or 2020. So I have to keep it very broad and general within the next five to 10 years. Um, and B, I also want to not be forced to take a contract just because I'm meeting money goals. Because for me at this point where I am right now, there's more to life than money. There's there's stuff like spending time with my son, which is partly why I took the time off this year. Um, because he's starting school next year. So I took the time off this year to kind of hang out with him, you know, talk to him and then kind of just get that last moments of his innocent childhood with me as memories before he starts school and he'll be in school for a long time and maybe not want to ever talk to me <laughs> once he turns 13. But, uh, you know, it's one of those things where I want to use, I want to have general goals that I want to reach, but I'm also not fixated on a timeline where I have to be a millionaire by the age of 40 and, you know, all this stuff is very arbitrary for me. I mean, who chose, first of all, a million? It couldn't be, what, a million point two five or a million five or a million point three 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 seven eight. You know, why is it always round numbers? And then why is it round ages, like 35, 40? I don't want to have to feel like I made myself a failure at 40, even be just because I didn't become a millionaire, even though I know I'm not a failure. I don't want to set those kinds of arbitrary goals um, in the sense that, you know, I kind of just going with the flow and seeing how things work out. And, and when I do work, I'm just going to sock away lots of money. My average has been about uh, 50,000 to 60,000 a year. In one year, I saved, I think, 250K net um, from my earnings. So I think I'm doing all right. Like, I just I just want to live life and work a little bit, you know, take a break. Be when I get too angry, <laughs> work again. <laughs> no, I think it's great. And you got a great approach and you've been very successful. Is there anything, you know, maybe outside of, of the money realm that's on the bucket list in your life, whether it's experiences with your son or things that you're looking forward to that, that kind of relate with money but aren't directly related? Yes, I think I think what I would really like to travel and live in another country for a while. Um, I've had my eyes set on France for a while, but with all the political turmoil that's happening, I'm kind of looking elsewhere now. But it would be really nice to live abroad. And for us to have that expat lifestyle and for my son to experience something different in a school, especially when he's so young right now that the educational part doesn't really matter as much until he gets into the older grades. Um, so related to money, yeah, it would be nice to be able to just live abroad and not basically not work and just hang out and live a peasant life, <laughs> you know, maybe grow my own vegetables, live on a farm. I don't know. You know, it's. I want to try something different and, and, you know, have my son experience something different rather than telling him, Hey, this is the path. Stick to it. Study hard. Come home. Don't, you know, don't play video games. You know, all the kind of stuff that typically parents tell you to do to become successful. I want him to have other experiences, um, that make him more successful as a well-rounded being. Just because I know that from traveling, you see how other people live and you realize that what you've taken for granted in Canada or even the U.S. If you go to, <clears throat> excuse me, to third world countries, if you go to even other first world countries, they do things so differently there. They have such a different approach to life. And it's something that I wish that I could have had when I was younger. 
which is something I want to impart onto my son, hopefully when he gets older. So that's kind of my general thought right now. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Let's talk about that for a second. You know, Clark and I have, have had made it a point kind of to, to discuss educating children and, and kind of what, you know, millionaires and people well on their way to becoming millionaires are doing to educate their children. Because a lot of times, you know, the way we learn about money and the way we learn about these things is really in the home. And, you know, we might learn from some of our friends or our friends' parents or something, but for the most part, the curriculums in the schools aren't teaching these kinds of things. So what is are some of the approaches you're taking to teach your son about money and about life and, and those kinds of things? So when you're talking about curriculum in schools, I yeah, for sure, there's no there's absolutely nothing. I mean, I can remember maybe a home economics class that was an optional class that would have taught you how to budget. Um, but other than that, you know, teaching kids about money, this is such a black hole for many people, and especially in the educational system. And it is in the home that you do teach your kids about money, which is why I think having parents who are money savvy really gives kids a head, you know, a leg up in the world, just because even if they don't make a lot of money, that's fine. They know how to budget it. They understand that it's not all their money to play with. So in terms of, of education at home, if you're asking about strategies of how I plan on educating my son, <laughs> since he's only five. I, he understands, off, right? <laughs> you give yeah, him a yeah. dollar, he, he knows. Actually, <laughs> well, actually, he's he's not very materialistic, believe it or not, because we don't have a TV. Um, and we don't really go to the toy store and just pick out stuff and buy things. And we don't have events like Christmas and birthdays where he gets massive presents all we do for those events now, because he's young, is that we just have a great meal. We sit together. We talk. We have a good time. He loves eating the food that we make for him. But we don't tie gifts to those kinds of events, um, which I, I think helps with his con- lack of consumerism, really, because he doesn't go through catalogs and say, Mommy, you have to buy this for me. Mommy, I want this now, and I want this, and I want this car. He doesn't say any of that because he doesn't even think it's possible <laughs> at this point. But you're right. He does understand numbers and actually he, he does already understand money and how to do math with money. We've been working on those concepts when I've been at home with him. And I think I'd like to start something where I give him a small amount of money when he starts school and say, Hey, you know, I have, uh, I don't know, a hundred dollars and we need to buy crayons and a backpack and blah, 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 blah. Would you like to go through and pick out these things and match them to the budget? And if you like this backpack, but it costs more money. We won't have money for crayons, you know, and kind of introduce those basic concepts of managing money. And then from there, um, as he progresses uh, and let's say gets a job, I'd like to sit down with him, go through his first paycheck with him, understand how much the government is taking, where it's going, why it's going there, how much he has to save aside as, as you know, savings, which I for me would be 25 percent. And that the rest of it is so-called, in quotes, disposable income, but not really disposable because you have to think about your future self. So you also have to pay your future self, your taxes and that sort of thing. So I'd like to do that when he gets a job. And as he gets his job, I would also like to correlate having him um, understand about investing, especially index investing, and maybe teaching him how to pick a dividend stock and what to look for in financials and what to read and see whether he gets interested in doing that or he can just stick with dividend stocks. I'm okay with that too. <laughs> but at least getting him started because, you know, boys, when they're young, they want fast cars, they want exciting things and you need money. So I figure that's the motivator. You know, you want that cool car, you need money. <laughs> How do you get money for it? And you invest it. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, props to you. You know, you've obviously thought about it. So, so props. I think it's something we all try and balance and, and think about, you know, I guess for, at least for those that have kids upcoming or young kids, right? It's always on our mind. It's how we can, how we can teach some of these many things that we've learned and, and pass them down. And not only to kids, right? To others, to friends, to family members, to anybody else who, who might need it or be interested in it. So Once you Sherry, get me just, talking about money, I don't stop. Like I, yeah. I'm just like, Bleh. invest these funds, <laughs> open this account, don't pay TD more than you have to, you know? Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. So just before we end here with some uh, mistakes and, and maybe some general advice to people, just want to wrap up with some rapid fire questions here. So what's the most expensive jeans or pair of pants you've ever purchased? For retail value or what I paid? What you paid. What I paid, I would say uh, $150 for jeans. Okay, what about shoes? Shoes, I would say the most I ever paid was 350 Okay, what about a car? <laughs> 180000 180000 <laughs> Yes. What type of car is that? <laughs> I'm not going to mention it because it's... <laughs> I will tell you all after the podcast, but not during the live show, please. <laughs> okay, okay, gotcha. Uh, most expensive meal out that you've paid for? Oh, goodness. I would say I treated my whole family... Um, actually, I do this every year when they come up. So the most money I've ever paid is probably $600. Okay. Um, what item or items or experiences are worth spending more money on to you? Food, travel, although in recent years, I don't really like being on a plane. So that's kind of fallen off the wayside. But when I was younger, it was travel for sure. And, okay. and you're a foodie. Nice. You have a favorite oh, restaurant? Oh, yes. I, I have many favorite restaurants. It depends on what you want to eat. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, let's see. My last one is, you know, I this is very unpopular, especially in the money community. But I think well-fitting, tailored, perfectly made clothes can really change your mood for the day. I'm just going to put it out there. <laughs> okay. Okay, nice. And what's not worth the money? Or what are you trying to save on? Furniture. I really don't want, I mean, we don't have a TV, so we don't need a couch. We don't need a coffee table, side tables, rugs. I mean, all this stuff disappears when you don't have a TV or video games, right? So right. furniture is where I really don't like spending money on. And when we do spend money on it, it better be handmade, artisanal, you know, wood crafted from fairies in the forest kind of. Because <laughs> <laughs> we have so little of it that, you know, whatever you do actually own, it better be amazing. Okay. Uh, household spending, you, or, or excuse me, household income, you, you told us was about 60,000, 65,000 to about 260. What about household spending? How much do you spend a year? So when you say household income, that's just my income. So my, my partner. Oh, that's just makes, yours. That's just mine. That's just me. Okay. Yeah. All okay. of this money gotcha. talk is just all my money. Yeah. His money is actually ha double mine, meaning whatever I have, he's got that and more. He's actually retired. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> Um, okay. and, uh, for household spending, the base, base, base expenses is 24,000 a year. This is when I'm not living on beans and rice, but like ramen, you know, with an egg crack in there once in a while. And <laughs> so just one step up from rice and beans. Yeah, Call that Shanghai. <laughs> you have, you have a steak, but you make it last for five days, you know, that kind of, that kind of bare bones expenses. But I'm okay. bougie enough that I, I would actually prefer a budget of actually 3500 a month because I feel like that's that would include vacations and, you know, buying gifts for people. Then I don't have to think, oh, that's going to screw up my budget, you know. So base expenses, 2000 And actually, I did the math yesterday or a few days ago, and I can actually retire on that $2,000 if today if I wanted to, but I won't because... I'm too expensive. <laughs> and my, yeah. my expected budget or the one ideally I would like is 3500 a month just for my half because my partner pays the other half. 
Okay. When's he coming on? Uh, he's not very interested in all of this money talk. He just wants to <laughs> chill out and do his own I'm thing. Just, just, but he's, just <laughs> but his thing is that he's, he's actually very, very, very frugal. And he said, you know, if I'd started when you did freelancing at 25, I would have, you know, retired a lot sooner. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, what products or any books you recommend? Anything that stand out that you, that you would recommend to other people? Your Money or Your Life. I think that book really did change my life. Although I will say the first money book that I read called The Millionaire's Next Door, that one really changed my mind as to who was rich. Because you think that people out there are rich, but they're really not. You know, they're living off debt and borrowed borrowed time, basically. And I never realized that because it seems so obvious now. But when you see your friend going around in a Mercedes and she's got all this and that, you're thinking, what? What am I doing wrong? You know, she's, she's making the same amount as me, but she's living such a big life. I'm doing something completely wrong here. How come I can't be like that? And I think that lifestyle inflation part, it really gets tamped down when you read the book Millionaires Next Door and you realize that real millionaires don't actually do that unless they purposefully choose to, you know, like buying an $180,000 car. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, it's one of those things where, uh, it helps you realize that what you see is not what reality really is. So Sherry, just to wrap up here, what would kind of be your last parting bit, bit of advice to people, or maybe it's any big financial mistakes you've made? What would you, what would you advise people financially? Be frugal. Frugal does not mean cheap. Frugal means setting priorities for your money and deciding that you want to eat fancy organic food, but you live with no furniture. Okay. That's, that's being frugal. Um, and the second point is, especially for women out there, please, please, please negotiate your money. Okay. Every time you start a new job, you should ask for at least ten to $15,000 more than what they're asking you, if not more than that, 30% to 30,000 more each time I asked for it. And if you have money sitting on the table and they're going to keep it and give it to somebody else. So you might as mm. well ask for it because otherwise it's not going to be yours. Awesome. Great advice again for our listeners. That's Sherry. Net worth of about 850000 She paid off $60,000 to debt and works as a STEM consultant. Sherry, thanks so much for coming on the show today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Sherry. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.